0: Thank you, Megan and Preston. I'm Johnny. I use he, him pronouns. I want
1: to offer a message to you that I hope encourages you, uh, stimulates your mind, gets you in your body, maybe even spurs you to action. We'll start by reading from 1 Corinthians. We're going to do 15, 1 through 20, and we need a volunteer to do that. We like the, the, uh, the lecture is the community, so... Y'all, y'all read the passage out loud. You know, someone on Zoom could do this too. So if anybody volunteers on Zoom and wants to do it, it doesn't have to be in the room. But if you are in the room and you want to do it, use the mic that Donovan will offer you. So any, bite, any, t- any bites on Zoom or any wi- willing people here, raise your hand. All right, Caitlin, thank you.
0: Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which, you al- in which also you stand, the which you- also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I in turn have received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have died.
1: Thank you, Caitlin. Let's pray together. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. Amen. I just confessed to my friend today that it seems like our society might be falling apart. Um, it's been really a hard two years in the world, in the region, even in our church. So much difficulty. Global climate change, a warming earth that threatens to kill millions of people, up to 10 million excess deaths because of the pandemic across the world, approaching 1 million in the United States just from the virus. There's a world war threatening major conflict that could potentially happen between Ukraine and Russia, the biggest mobilization of troops since World, since world War II would happen if that occurred. This pandemic's ongoing and not only deadly, but change affecting us. It's a mass disabling event. People suffering with long COVID. So many people are suffering with long COVID that the labor, that, that we have a labor shortage. So a lot of people are becoming disabled. And not also to say there's existential um, consequence from the pandemic and from the, state, the appropriate safety measures that we've taken. Our church is undergoing a major transition um, in our staff and in our leadership. One of our pastors recently resigned and there's a, a, our founding pastors are moving on as well. So a lot is happening. And then we also engaged in anti-racism work as a church over the last year and a half which has been difficult has been personal Um, I was reading me and white supremacy today and Layla told us that um, this work is personal it's costly it will burden us and we felt that and we're also just trying to regather our congregation for the last six months when we've been so disparate we're welcoming in new folks that's that's exciting And, and returning together as a body but We also remember that it's different than it used to be. So it's been hard. It's been difficult. At a very personal level, you might have experienced it, and then you see the evidence around you. You know, sometimes there's suffering that's too terrible to name. And we're stuck in it. We can't imagine beyond it. We push away the unimaginable. We can let despair haunt us. And overtake us and we can learn to live with the unimaginable but I hope we can do more than that. Our tendency might be to push away what we can never understand but I hope that when we look at this season around us we can embrace and hold all the death and dying and find a new way forward. I'm not interested in a faith or a religion that merely gives us an opportunity to transcend our present problems, though some transcendence is good. I'm more interested in a faith that challenges our present problems and changes us. Our faith needs to have an immediate existential consequence. I hope that you leave this meeting feeling better than you did when you came and more encouraged. I hope you just don't leave with a future hope. You know, religion that just gives you a present hope to not feel your present suffering, that's like an opiate. It numbs your pain. It helps you to cope with the difficulty. We want to transform our suffering and our pain into something else. I want to feel the horror of the present circumstance and not be afraid of it because I know that God will liberate me. God will redeem us. I don't want to dumb it down. I want to feel it. I want a faith that can consider impossible things. Can you imagine that? Our passage today is dealing with the impossible and the unimaginable. Paul's talking about the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, and he's connecting that to the resurrection of Christ. Before we get to that, though, let's just remind ourselves of the context of Corinth and the Corinthian body. So there's divisions in the church in Corinth that we've been going over for the last few weeks. You can listen to the message podcast in the past if you're interested in catching up from chapter we started in chapter 11 and then moved to 15. No, chapter 12, I'm sorry. The divisions in the church could be, they could be, in, in, the, in the Corinthian church, could be between people that um, are very spiritual, very uh, holy, have special gifts, versus, and, 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 and they live in excess, they're often wealthy, or people that are more uh, ascetic or they, they, they don't live. Extravagant lives They try to live simple lives Between libertines and legalists You might say Or there could be some Between what we call Gnostics who, 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 um, who in fact don't believe In the resurrection of the physical body And have some secret knowledge That God gives them And then the non-Gnostic Christians A lot of people speculate about that Or just Jews opposed to Gentiles Jews opposed to non-Jewish people or followers of Apollos versus followers of Paul. But again, the most significant fault in the church is between higher status Christians on one side called the strong and lower status Christians on the other side called the weak. The weak are the poor in Corinth and the strong are the wealthy. And it was the strong the high-status people who Paul is specifically writing in this section of Corinthians to exhort. He's he's talking to them in this passage because they believe they're deeply spiritual people and they seem to have achieved a present enlightenment and are prepared to enter the next age and leave their bodies behind. No bodily resurrection. So they adamantly oppose the resurrection of the physical body. And Paul has heard that in the city of Corinth, there are people who deny the resurrection of human beings. And he'll say this now, if Christ is proclaimed as, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He's specifically talking to the strong who don't believe this. And in this penultimate chapter of his first letter to them, he lobbies a defense of the resurrection of the dead. He is convincing them that we resurrect, which he hinges to the resurrection of Christ. So this isn't for Paul a defense of the resurrection of of Christ because the Corinthian body believes that. It's a defense of the resurrection of the dead, of their dead. And then he ties that to their entire faith. It's a strong approach. It wakes people up to the intensity of Paul's message. He starts by reminding them that the good news What he is offering them is how they're being saved if you hold firmly to this proclamation you'll be saved and if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of bodies you have believed in vain and he tells them here's how the story came here's how it was passed down to me In 1 Corinthians 11, which we actually did do when we do the Lord's Supper and the words of institution, he uses the same language here. For I handed unto on to you as of first importance what I had in turn received. When he gives the communion meal, he says, I received this from God and I'm giving it to you. He's doing the same thing here, same kind of language. The story itself has value because of who is offering it to the next person. It's coming from a reliable source is what Paul is saying to these people who admire the apostles. So he's handing it to the Corinthians in the same way that it was handed to him. The basic message is this. Jesus died for our sins, is buried, and rose in three days. He appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the apostles, and then to 500 siblings. And he says, among these 500, many of them are still alive. Paul is probably writing in like 50 BCE, right? So like somewhere somewhere in the modern uh, time, CE rather. So that's when he's writing. It's just shortly after even Jesus dies and resurrects. Um, And some of these 500 that have heard this are still alive. Then to James. And then finally, Paul lists himself least of the apostles. Because he's persecuted the church. He names his own sin. And that is the lowliest among them. And any esteem that Paul has from Corinth is not granted to him by his merit. It's not granted to him by his work. But rather, through the grace of God, a grace that's seemingly too powerful to name. Paul tells us that he has worked hard, but that was God working through him. Paul is assuring the Corinthians, and this is a good message for the strong, that any esteem that you have is not because of your own well-being, it's not because of your own good work, but through God. A reminder to all of us that if the Apostle Paul is Suggesting that he needs the grace of God because of his egregious sins, we must too. And your sins probably aren't as big as persecuting the church like Paul did anyway. He is, so on one hand, no matter what you've done, God still can receive you and love you. And on the other hand, if you think the good that you've done is because of your own, it's because God kind of finishes it for us completes it for us. Despite Paul's great accomplishments, he's not doing it on his own, but through God. And this specifically is an affront to the strong in Corinth who think much of their achievement comes from their personal enlightenment. <clears throat> so why is, that, why is this important for the Corinthians? Why is this an important thing to discuss? So let's, just, let's, let's consider why these Corinthians who just converted to Christianity on the proclamation of Christ's resurrection deny it so quickly. So many of these Corinthians have moved from, I guess, a pagan religion of some kind to Christianity. Why are they so quick to deny it? On one hand, they may, have, they may already think they've achieved resurrection. Um, the fancy word for that is uh, realized eschatology. Eschatology is like a end of the world uh, prophecy, pro- um, end of the world redemption that's coming. They think that's already happened and they're, they're living in that time. Most, many, many scholars think that. I'd say the text isn't very clear about that. But but what's more clear is that they believed in the resurrection, but they they believed in a spiritual one, not a physical one, not in a bodily resurrection. What they're objecting to is the body. And next week, we'll get through the rest of 15 and get into that. And that'll be, by the way, the end of our time in Corinth. But for now. So they denied the bodily resurrection. Paul is tr- tying the resurrection of the dead to the resurrection of Christ. He's making that connection. He's saying it clearly. This is not a metaphorical res- um, resurrection. And more than that, it's not a spiritual resurrection. It doesn't just exist as an analogy to something else, and it doesn't just exist as um, a resurrection that doesn't involve your actual body. It's embodied And because Christ's resurrection is embodied too, the resurrection of the dead must be possible as well and must happen. He's connecting these two very closely. The Bible writers, especially in the New Testament, consistently point to the physical, material nature of the resurrection of Christ. In John 21, when Jesus resurrects and visits the Disciples on the shore. There's another miraculous catch of fish. He eats with them and the food stays with him. So he's physical, he's real, human. It's important that we move the resurrection from something that's just in our minds, just in our hearts, something that we think will just happen to our spirits into something that really materially matters. And it's happening right there in their body. Something new is happening. There's a miracle happening, you know. Paul is asking them to look around, look around and see what's happening in Corinth. He's saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, You can't proclaim the resurrection of Christ. And he's emphasizing there's a materiality to both. Christ materially resurrected, and so will your dead. And he's directly advocating bodily resurrection and says the whole thing hinges on this. It's a strong argument. He doesn't just offer us present hope or even future spiritual hope. It's something more material. And I think that we've heard this a lot. Maybe you have if you grew up in church or you've been a Christian for some time or maybe you've even heard it in other, other areas. A lot of people emphasize the need to believe in the resurrection of Jesus to follow him. Paul is asking for something more than that. A belief that, 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 that our, our material selves can be transformed and resurrected. He's not just advocating to have the right belief. That's the problem. The belief doesn't matter. It matters when it is enacted. It is embodied. It exists. It's real. Don't mute this message to just believing in a resurrection and then having it stay in your head or your heart and that's the long and the short of it. You know, and and a lot of us spend, because you might leave here agonizing over whether you really believe that or not. Stop agonizing. We're living into it as a body. Look around, look around. It's happening right here. He's moving us And the Corinthians beyond their heads and into their bodies. It's good that Bryant got us into our bodies here. It's good when we worship together, when we do something together, when we gather together, when we take time to intentionally even log on to Zoom and be here. It matters. Okay? And I'm telling you this because what I'm doing right now is rather cerebral, it is rather in our heads. But this isn't even the center of what we're doing here, and it isn't the center of what we're doing in our lives as Christians. So often we get caught up in faith as certainty. We confuse the two of them. Faith is not certain. It wouldn't be faith if it was certain. We confuse belief as something that we merely assent to. We're dealing with mysterious things here faith in belief are not facts and certainty. They defy those things. That's what makes them special. Your faith shouldn't make any sense. It should contradict whatever rationality you've been given. It should be unimaginable. Our faith is so much more than just what we can um, rationally showcase. Paul is emphasizing that there's an embodied nature to our faith and of the resurrection. He's exhorting the Corinthians that the lived reality of that little church plant and that hundred-year-old colony in Rome is based on the resurrection of Jesus. And that's evidence of the bodily resurrection. So what does that mean for us, practically speaking? On one hand, it means that the resurrection of Jesus helps us to believe in material resurrection now. In our bodies, certainly. But also in our church. Impossible things can happen. In our congregation. Our belief in an embodied resurrection gives way for us to believe in material resurrection now. Yes, in personal salvation. Yes, in personal resurrection. Yes, in your circumstances right now, whatever despair you're in, you can overcome. You can be transformed. Something new can happen. But I don't want to just stop Christianity there. There's more that's happening. Welcome. Come on in. Come on in. I don't want to just stop it there. There's more that's happening. We can believe that our sins can be overcome, that our societal sins can be overcome. That people can change. That people can grow. That organizations can change. That churches can change. That the church can change. If we just spiritualize the resurrection, or for shame, reduce it to a mere belief as opposed to a lived reality, what hope do we have for transformation? If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are people We are of all people most to be pitied. If it only gives you hope now and not into something else, then you should be pitied. You should be mocked for the for the lack of um, um, hope in changing our present circumstances that your faith gives you. What does he say? Your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Super aggressive. Some of us have a different starting point, though. As opposed to believing in the resurrection of Christ, perhaps we already believe in embodied resurrection around us. Maybe we think we can build an anti-racist church. Maybe we think personal enmity can give way to transformation. Maybe we think the world can change, and maybe we think we're a part of it. Maybe we think that hardened hearts can be saved. Maybe we're full of hope that the world can be turned upside down. But if we want to believe that miraculous things can be done and I admit this is where my faith wanes maybe it'll give way to greater miracles. This is why I love Paul's humility in the passage above. But by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Our accomplishments don't just happen because of hard work. We don't do good because we are good. Even Jesus, when he's approached by the rich young ruler in Mark 10, retorts back when he calls him good teacher. He says, who are you calling good? Only the Father is good. We are good because we rely on the author of good the author of hope the author of love it's not just because we are good it's because we are made good believing in the unimaginable the impossible gives us an opportunity to have faith and hope into things that we can't seem to faith is a discipline faith is a choice it's a posture it's not based on knowing it for sure Hope is a discipline. Disciplining ourselves to be hopeful in turn disciplines us to be angry at the injustice around us. You can be angry because you're hopeful for what God will do. Resurrection, the belief in the absurd that doesn't make sense. The impossible is so important for people who want to transform themselves, transform their communities, transform the world. The hope of a new life amidst despair and brokenness. The horror of the last few years has caused people to fall away from faith. And I'm, I'm with you in that. I know that. But holding on to what doesn't seem to make sense, helps us get through without giving in to despair and to oppression. We need that hope, and it's not just a spiritual hope, it's a real hope. It's an embodied hope, it's a material hope. An embodied resurrection, a material resurrection. Yes, we can change. Yes, the world can change. And our belief in the impossible grants us this ability. Let's pray and then we'll do some talk back, okay? We'll get the people on Zoom up here and we'll hear from them and hear from the rest of you too. Lord, help us to see your presence, your faithfulness in us. Show us where resurrection can really happen. Give us the hope that it can happen with us and in our body. Amen.